0: Welcome to The Rest is Education. This is an educational podcast by teachers for teachers. And I'm Ross Borthwick. And I'm David Marshall. This week, we're looking at the topic of service in education. So, with this idea,
1: Ross, we thought we'd talk a little bit about how schools or if schools can uh, nurture service and what that really means. Should we start by defining what we mean by service and, and maybe say why we think we should service is something that's important in schools, who it's for and what children, teachers and maybe the community can get out of it?
0: Yeah, what do you absolutely. Think? And, you know, it's something I've been quite passionate to discuss, as you know, uh, since we, we started the pod. Um, but But actually, the rationale for it being now is I couldn't help but listen to the past couple of episodes um not least your one on on PISA and I think your conclusion was that you know ultimately one of the one of the things that we're looking to do is is educate a a group of children that are kind and actually can I'm interested to know can that kindness be taught um but but service in general I suppose to serve to to serve a community to serve another individual I know there's this idea isn't there that's quite familiar in our generation and maybe our parents generations of doing a good deed um so like one off examples of service uh you know in in the moment um but but then obviously you know there are quite extreme examples of of service in in terms of the amount of time that you can put into something maybe compulsory uh service as well and and actually whether that is the same as as voluntary yeah and we'll be talking a little bit later about
1: uh national service the idea of that we'll be talking about some of the countries that do it and uh, about the history of national service a little, little bit in in the uk with a an interview and a, a chat with with my dad who who did national service in the 1950s so we've got lots of this to come going back to the sort of idea of why Why do we want to do this podcast on service? I guess, I think, Ross, that both of us and Aaron as well, we all feel that it's something that is important for children to learn how to do. And it can sometimes, when you say the word service, it can sometimes sound like quite an old-fashioned idea. But actually, what it really boils down to is what you said earlier, which was this idea of having kind children because service really is doing things for others that's not for yourself. And it's something that I think is important for all of us as human beings to to do things that are, are not just for ourselves and learn how to not be selfish. And personally, I think schools can help to, to teach that to children. I, I mean, it, it, obviously, there's a lot happening at home with parents and with the wider community and various other clubs and societies that children get involved in. And you know stuff they're reading and watching but i do think you know that given the amount of time children spend at school i do think schools can do a lot to create like a sort of crucible of learning about service what do you think
0: yeah i c- i couldn't agree more and i think there's going to be a fair bit of agreement between us in this this episode but um you know if we if we take education and we think about what the the aims of it are and if we're we're pretty clear on the academic aims, although the the knowledge injecting aspect of that's going to be questioned, I'm sure, of the next decade with artificial intelligence and the application of that. There are also skills, and we could all agree that there are basic skills that we want everyone to, to acquire during their time in formal education. But then I think, the other things can be maybe put under the umbrella of of values or or habits and some schools do the delivery of those values perhaps better than others or, or at least more explicitly than others. And and within that you might have selflessness. And so a selfless act or a kind act is something that we would maybe highlight in an assembly um, or would have highlighted when we worked together, David, using you know a few different strategies, uh, and there'd be a real focus on on that value. Um, and and of course, schools are really left to their own devices as to how they want to deliver that. And and I'm sure some do an awful lot of it, and it is quite prescriptive. But for every one of those schools, there might be another or, or many more that that don't. Touch upon it at all. And I would say that that's a great shame. And and I'm sure that we'd like to see more of that. And so um, we're fairly biased in that we would want this sort of stuff on the curriculum. Yeah, I I think we would. I I just
1: disagree with you on that on one point, which is I think that most, if not all, schools have an element of this in terms of what you said about values and habits. You could call them dispositions or attitudes. But I think every school I've come across, has values that they put up there. It could be a motto in Latin, or sometimes it's uh, a list of the habits that they want to follow. You know, quite a lot of schools I know follow the habits of mind and others have their own really old fashioned, going back a long way, uh, sort of values that they sort of kind of return to. Um, others look towards role role models and and they sort of integrate that to their house systems or to the name of their school. So I think that all schools do this. Um, at least all schools that I've come across in the UK and abroad, they uh, they have some element of this. And to a certain extent, they're probably quite similar. They come down to quite a few things. Interestingly, I think you know, going back to kindness, I do think that's one that surprisingly is missed off a little bit. Sometimes I think we can talk a lot about these days, knowledge, which I think is obviously, you know, one of the key points of education and ways and different attitudes and of learning around knowledge and being an active learner. But if we're missing out kindness, then, and, and then we're sort of, well, I think it goes back to that idea of, what kind of people do you want out in the world? you just want people who know a lot of stuff but don 't really have any morals or values? Would you want people who know a lot of stuff and do have the ability to make really good choices and I think you know as educators
0: we and, and almost everybody we know would say say the latter and you know it 's interesting that thinking and doing the the difference there because we really founded the the Thinking School, which we've spoken about a great deal, um, that was was very much a, a sort of philosophical approach to education. And one thing that we, as a team, tried to introduce was actually elements of being a doing school. And can we put these values into practice through maybe the, the direct sort of teaching of, of certain activities, or, or at least facilitate? Actually, facilitating is probably a better word than teaching because what we really wanted to see was the the children undergoing different tasks but but off their own back
1: so Ross you did I remember so much work when we were working in the same school together on this and creating I guess a a sort of an area where children could learn how to serve do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things that we put in there
0: yeah, so I think we identified that this was an area of the school's education that we we could do more with, and we took a collaborative approach to really creating a, a voluntary award, which would sit partially within the curriculum, and, and so all pupils would be able to to achieve it if they if they so wished. But there were lots of voluntary elements to it, which they could take part in at weekends or in the holidays. And it was, I suppose, similar to the Duke of Edinburgh Award in that there was a service element, um, there was an adventurous element, there were some skills elements to it, life, particularly life skills. And um, it was very hands-on. It was, you know, it was very practical in nature. And um, the children, I think, were incentivized by the reward that we put in place, in that uh, there wasn't just a certificate that they could take with them. There was also an actual prize for uh for taking part and and for achieving certain levels and it was something they they took part in over the course of three years um and To give an example for instance uh in the like the service element so um let's say on a particular um assembly slot, you had one house worth of of year seven and eights working together on a particular um, element of the award. So um, one example could be that they would go and actually help w- help the secretaries with their uh, recycling or um, with the, you know, the uh, photocopying or um shredding paper or uh actually one of my favorites was taking a group round to muck out the chicken coop uh, although i appreciate it, it's not possible at all schools although if it's if it is um possible at, at our old digs i would say it's possible in most schools because we weren't overly uh endowed with outdoor space yeah I'd i'd say you can you could manufacture that type of service in most school settings
1: Was this the one where you also took people to work at an elderly people's home nearby?
0: Yeah. So, again, you know, there were different options within this. So, one of my, actually, one of my favorite moments working there was when we took a group of, it was actually just the top year in this instance, although the credits went towards the same award. We took a a group of pupils, it was post exams, down to the local retirement home and walk them down there and they could either chat play games card games or you know basic dice games or or they could perform and so some were willing to sing but not chat some were willing to play an instrument but but not play a game and so they they had a degree of choice within that and actually they didn't need to come at all there though it was another option within the day um, but but surprisingly on several trips, I, I found the same faces and all the time the same pupils were gaining more and more credits towards their award. And it was just so heartwarming to see really some of the oldest members of the community, which actually often locks away in society, particularly the less mobile um, adults, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily have seen day to day. And and then likewise, actually, you know, them interacting with some of the youngest pupils, which again, are often sort of locked away in in their in their own way in that um you know it's very rare that the youngest and the oldest would interact um in society like that so it was it was really heartwarming to watch
1: yeah and looking sort of taking from a sort of micro level to a macro level there's obviously a, a aging demographic in the UK and in many sort of countries in the global north at the moment and there's been a lot I think said and written about how important it is to link up the, you know, the younger generation, the children with the older generation, particularly as you say, as people are less mobile and and having that opportunity that I think a lot, they get a lot from each other, that opportunity to spend time. um, You know, some people don't have access to their grandparents. They're not living in the same place. Certainly older people don't always have ability to spend time with children and it can be such a rewarding experience. So you can see the benefit that both would just get from spending the time together, whatever, you know, they were doing in terms of puzzles or chatting together or, you know, crosswords, reading, whatever it was. Um, There's there's so much there that you could see would really be beneficial outside of, you know, the stuff we're talking about. One thing I wanted to ask about the Ross was, uh, and and maybe we can think a little bit about some other big programs that are linked to what you were, what you sort of developed. He talked about credits, um, and it made me think about our very first episode, which was on gamification, because in a sense, you're building a setup, and you created it from scratch, where children are earning credits to get to a uh, an award. It's not dissimilar to the idea of leaderboards and 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 gamification we were talking about, you know, right back at the beginning of our podcast last year. I wonder, you know, other programs have a similar thing. So you mentioned the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which I think you said our system was based off. And, and the other one I I know of is the IB, the International Book Gloria, which is done by a lot of schools in the UK and also, of course, internationally, um, which has an element of service to it in terms of, you know, to get the IB, you have to do one aspect of it, uh, which is called CAS. It uh, stands for Creativity, Activity and Service quite you know the similarities all three of the systems our system the uh, international baccalaureate and the Duke of Edinburgh are all about kind of to put it bluntly collecting points do we think that's a bad thing or or is it actually just a really good way of encouraging children to
0: do good things so I see it as Mm -hmm. as a visual you know, for, for example, um, we all enjoy those tasks where we can see our progress. And I think, you know, from, from mowing the lawn to splitting logs to whatever it is, and there's something quite human about that. And whilst the children, I'm sure, would love doing the same tasks and, and uh, you know, for instance, those those boys and girls that came to the the old people's home, I saw the same faces week after week after week. And so for them, it was voluntary because they'd already achieved a set amount of points. And so I don't think they were doing it to bank more and more points. I think they were doing it because they enjoyed it. Um, but, But it certainly helps to have... A visual record and i think you know we talked about that uh, what that might look like for for a child when we discussed gamification you know you could have it as a pie chart or what, whatever you like i actually every term would sit down with pupils actually every half term would sit down with pupils and, and look at their pastoral academic and their leadership record and and so we could we could have the visual data in in terms of credits it's useful mm-hmm. to have something you know tactile to to um I suppose base that conversation off. But um for me it was a purely practical thing. I don't I don't think that they're essential to to incentivize people to, to maybe want to engage in, in acts of service. It's just, yeah, from an administrative point of view, it's quite it's quite useful. And uh, you know, <laughs> To an extent, lots of people are motivated by an award or a medal or a certificate or whatever it might be. And and so particularly maybe younger people, although again, I'm stereotyping, but, you know, the youngest pupils, they might be more interested in in collecting a a gong, you know, at the end of it. Yeah. And
1: we have we have systems in all, you know, my schools like Merits, House Points, whatever it is we're collecting. And while a lot of those perhaps go towards academic, depending on the school, Um, definitely having sort of something that's rewarding the thought, the element of service that going in is really helpful. I guess I think of it as a bit like a scaffold for a building. You know how, you know, when a building's being built or developed, you put up a scaffolding, then eventually, obviously, the building has to support itself, you take down the scaffolding. And I think it's that idea of moving from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation ultimately uh, the children that you were working with had progressed beyond the sense that they were working for a reward they were working because they were helping out because they wanted to and they realized actually this is pretty cool you know we're going back to that gamification podcast again we talked a little bit about the idea of of the chemical is it dopamine levels that are you know that are, are a good thing or rather in this case that was the gamification but i think good things doing nice things for people they do give us a hit of um something positive inside us we feel good because we do something nice for someone else irrespective of, of whether we're getting an award or not and i think when you teach children that that's what happens they maybe move beyond the medal or the certificate
0: Yeah. And I I think us as teachers, we were facilitating that, you know, and there there were some elements of the award with a wider leadership award, which weren't really linked to service that we did teach. So I explicitly taught some life skills, Um, you know, uh, for for instance, sewing, you know, making amending, looking after in uniform, that sort of thing. And this idea of trying to to maintain something rather than disposing of it. Um, you know, that that could be taught. But but I think the service aspect, a lot of the time, it's just facilitation on, on the part of the adult. And, and so that that could be quite easily adopted. In a, a variety of settings at a variety of age appropriate you know levels but um, so so clearly this is being done already and so viewers or rather listeners uh, I hope you're listening rather than viewing are probably thinking well why are you discussing it if it 's being done already and I suppose to get to give an idea um, the Duke of Edinburgh award, which is probably the most famous global example of this is in one hundred and forty three countries at the moment and it was introduced in the 1950s but we can see that almost half a million people go through the Duke of Edinburgh Award every year, which obviously isn't everyone nationally, let alone in those 143 countries. If we accept that not all pupils start, and then obviously not everyone finishes, but if we accept that not all pupils start one of these initiatives that, that facilitate service, then we currently have a system which isn't delivering that opportunity to everyone and so i suppose one of the reasons we're discussing this is to highlight the fact that we think it's beneficial we know it's beneficial not least in our hearts but but i'm sure we can discuss reasons you know tactile reasons skills and and the rest of it which would be um beneficial to society but we know that it's then not being taught so we we want to highlight that do you want to just explain what the duke of edinburgh award is just for anyone who doesn't know so the Duke of Edinburgh Award is um, well, it was founded, obviously, by the late Duke of Edinburgh in the 1950s. And it's this idea that really young people should be doing more than just what they, they learn at school. Although actually, often schools deliver the Duke of Edinburgh Award, although not exclusively. And within this award, there are different elements. So there's a physical skill, there's a, a sort of hobby or a non-physical skill, uh, there's a voluntary element... And then there's an expeditionary element. And I suppose that we've talked a lot about the voluntary element already, just giving your time um, for someone or something else. Um, But the expeditionary element is probably the most famous uh, sort of postcard for the Duke of Edinburgh Award in that it's encouraging young people to go out and challenge themselves as a team physically and mentally over a number of days in the outdoors and to engage with the outdoors. Um obviously at the time, the nineteen fifties, largely populations were um pretty pretty urban. And I know over the past sort of decade or so we've seen the first significant shift since the Industrial Revolution of people moving back to the countryside. But I think we can all agree that the vast majority of the population is is still very much urban. And so the rationale behind the award is as relevant today as it was you know, 70 odd years ago. So and these, just, just to say this, the
1: Duke of Edinburgh award, it's quite a big deal. I mean, I did the bronze award and I think I completed it. I didn't do silver or gold. And I think I did it when I was about 15 and I remember it. I remember it really distinctly as being, there was the expedition. I can't remember what I did my for my service or my my skills, but even I'd say even the bronze award felt like a lot of work and it felt like something that was an achievement that's not even going on to then doing silver and gold, which I think are, you know, really significant, quite time-consuming aspects of your life, particularly at that age, aren't they?
0: Hugely, and I think obviously you were fortunate enough to have gone to a school. I'm assuming you did it through your school, David. But
1: yeah, I did. Is that right, yes. yeah.
0: So you're fortunate enough to go to a school which valued the Duke of Edinburgh Award because whilst it was a lot of time and effort for for you as a pupil undertaking the award, you've got to imagine that it, it's fairly resource heavy um, on on the school and that they need to train members of staff and and dedicate time uh, and often funds to to make that happen. But but they recognise as a school that it that it's worth doing and that it's form as part of a broader education so so you know you you like uh well i think it's 43 percent of 14 year olds over the past um well, it was last year last academic year started a um a bronze award and obviously you completed yours but um not, not everyone does and and you know that that's fine but but it's it, for me it's it's providing the opportunities so I think it's great that almost 50% of, of young people are getting this opportunity, but it's, it just strikes me as such a shame that, that the other sort of 50-odd percent aren't.
1: And this is, this is interesting. Just to sort of like give another example, uh, you know, moving away from the Duke of Edinburgh Award uh, and going back to the interview that I was on our last episode with Lucy Crahan, in her book, Cleverlands, which I recommend that you all read, um she talked about different schools and the schools that she visited and worked in for a period of time over a few months and and one of the places she went to was Japan and she talked a bit about the way in which a lot of what's being done uh in the classroom uh besides the academics is to sort of enable harmony within the school structure and encourage children to take responsibility for, say, behavior and management of the classrooms. And to a certain extent, I think service plays a really big part in that, in looking after others. Um, And I thought that was an interesting element of her looking at um, an aspect of culture within schools that maybe uh, is or isn't transferable to other schools in different places. And it made me sort of think, well, there's there's these organizations like the IB, there's also the Duke of Edinburgh, and then there's probably a lot going on in different countries and different schools around the world. Um, obviously, we don't know you know, we don't, don't know a lot outside our own country, but it's just really interesting to think about what there is out there that ways that people are encouraging children to get involved with service. It kind of really. Again, it comes back to this idea of what is it to be a good citizen and what does it mean to sort of get children to the stage where they are going to be good citizens and and when they leave school. One thing that we have looked at is national service. Um, National service is where there is compulsory military service, usually, uh, after leaving school. So I think usually around the age of 18, And quite a number of countries still have national service around the world. Um, The UK used to have national service and it finished, I believe, in the 1960s. So we're going to now have a little bit of a segue and look at something which is further education. We could call it that. And the idea of of national service. So what we're going to do is we're going to play an interview that I did with my dad. Um, Most of this is explained in the interview, uh, but my dad was... Uh, did national service in the 1950s dad thanks so much for talking to me that's fine i wanted to ask you a few questions about national service yes because we've talked about this before and you uh, went through national service you were maybe one of the last generation to go through national service in the uk and i just wanted to get your thoughts about your own national service and whether you think it's something that should be brought back
2: Right, thank you. Well, the National Service that uh, I experienced was quite near home because it so happens that I lived in Yorkshire and the one of the largest um, army military training centre was in Catterick, which is North Yorkshire. So it's not far, far away. Um, what it allowed for was uh, obviously easy access to the camp and also to visit home. So it was a bit like being in a school in a way, but it was um, it was it was the army. What else do you want to know?
1: Well, I suppose um, I know you were also in as well as in katrick I think you were in Germany for a while. Yes.
2: Well. Well, you're in the army. You have to do something, and um, they decided that, um, for some reason, that, that I was to be a mechanic, a radio mechanic. I'd never done anything but that in my life, and and the training they gave me was minimal. But nevertheless, that's what they decided, and what the army decides to do. <laughs> So I spent some time being uh, actually the head of a little unit because I was in the Royal Corps of Signals. You've got to be in a, a, a corps of some kind. They're all corps of signals. And um, I was posted to um, Germany, to Osbrook, which is, was called the British Army of the Rhine. Uh, and that's what it was, really. We were occupying that part of Germany uh, after the war had ended and it lasted for some time. And interesting enough, the, the, the work which was needed was to keep the radios in reasonable order so that they could be used on exercises. And from time to time, we went out on manoeuvres, sometimes at night time, uh, with tanks, uh, following tanks. And we had a vehicle of our own to um, keep going, really, and to watch that the
1: machinery they needed was uh, was in working order. And this was, because um, I know you were around, was it around 21 when you were there? Or was it younger? Uh, yeah. I
2: think a bit younger, hmm.
1: yeah. So it, this would have been around... 1952 or something like that, was that about right? Right, yes,
2: 52. Mm.
1: And then I, I know also that National Service was ended in 1960 in the UK and the last men were discharged in 1963, I think. So you would have been just 10 years before the end of National Service, you would have been discharged more or less. Right.
2: So you know more about it than I do.
1: <laughs> no, I've just looked it up. I <laughs> just now. I've looked it up. But I'm also interested <laughs> because the reason I wanted to ask about it, um, well, partly because we've talked about it a little bit, and you've mentioned before that you think national service is a good thing. And <clears throat> I wanted to know what you think it it how you think it benefited you, and also how you think it if it was something that was brought back in the UK, how you think it could benefit others.
2: Uh, well, first of all, I thought it was a waste of time. That that was the uh, <laughs> right the, uh, the, the the main impression I took away. But um, nevertheless, uh, in, in the course of time uh, and watching the events that have unfolded, and also my own experience uh, there in the army and afterwards. Uh, I think it did have some value. And I think it has more and more value now because we didn't know then that we would be involved in a European war uh, in 2023. Uh, That's something that's very new to to our belief and understanding. Uh, So that's one thing. Also, just looking at the way young people approach uh, employment and uh, their own um, way of of giving, really, of giving to uh, the work that's available to them. uh, They would benefit from having a time in a national service it could be a national national health service, for instance, which desperately needs people, uh, and it could be run on similar lines. But I believe it would be very valuable to um, bring it back as a training for young people. Really, I, I suppose that was what it would be, and um, so I'm, I'm more and more in favour of it being returned, and also. It, even on the military side, it wouldn't do any harm, as things have turned out, to have a country with young people who knew how to fire a gun. I <laughs> mean as simple as that.
1: It's um it seems to be I thought something that's been gone so long, because you know, 1963, 60 years ago, that it's like something that I think people would be hard to imagine having in the UK now because it's not part of anybody's sort of recent memories apart from someone like yourself who's served in it do you think there'd be a bit of resistance to sort of say suddenly national service being brought back everyone has to do it?
2: I think there would be a lot of resistance to it (laughs) Um, but like everything else uh, if it's for the nation and if case is made for it then um, you just state that that's what's going to happen. Really. I mean, it's like in the case of w- a when war is declared. You you don't really decide whether you're going to join or not. You 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 might decide when you're going to join, but essentially everyone's in it. And I think that's that's the spirit which would be very valuable at this time that everyone's in it together. And as things are moving, they're only getting worse. And they will only get worse unless some really useful move is made in the population. And this could be one of them.
1: Speaking, not that I'm speaking for a generation, but speaking for perhaps myself, who's never been or experience warfare, and the closest it's come is, as you said, what's happening in Europe right now, but it still feels distant to a certain extent. But not only have you done national service, but you uh, experience growing up as a child during the Second World War, and maybe that gives a different impression on what's possible. You, you said a thing earlier that no one could have imagined in, the, in that period that there would be a war in 2023, but actually there was a war Around that time, what's sometimes called the forgotten war in, in the 50s, in the Korean War.
2: Oh, there was indeed, because at the end of the training that um, comes to an end at some time, um uh there was a decision where where we were to go, you know, where we were to be posted. And um it was a weekend that I could uh, go home and I did. But it was also a weekend of deciding where everyone was going to be posted. And it was only when I got back on the Sunday night that um, I discovered where, where I was going. But it could have been one of two places. One, which is where I went to Germany, and the other was Korea, the Korean War. And that was a really... Desperate war. They 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 calculate you know, how many weeks you're going to last. And they actually tell you how, how how long you're going to live when you go out, <laughs> because they know uh, by the de- death toll what it's going to be. So you're quite right. It was uh, much 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 worse
1: more than many others yeah, And the survival rate for that one I remember you saying before was very low I mean the difference now uh, with the
2: European war is that everyone is involved I mean, your next door neighbour is involved you know, your, your friends and your grandmother is involved it's, it's that, that could happen here that, that's the point
1: Thank you, Dad. And I think what you're saying is a really, yeah, timely reminder and and quite sobering, but good to hear. I I just wanted to return to one thing, which is just to ask about your thoughts about if national service was something that was brought back. You mentioned the national health service and the need for people there. Are you saying that the it wouldn't just be military? It could be other areas where young people could serve.
2: Yes, I think it could be a whole range of areas that are in need of uh, people to work in. But not just work in, to be pioneers really in taking the country forward, um, finding new ways of producing food and all the things that the country is desperately in need of now. So... It could be very wide and very uh, valuable on all sides.
1: Yeah, you know, something like that, whatever it looked like, gives young people an opportunity to have a purpose, receive training, learn about something, but also it benefits uh, a wider community as well.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's quite it's quite an idea, and it's quite a vision. I'm not sure if everyone would agree with it, but I think it, it sounds interesting and uh, like something that people should be thinking about. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Well, Dad, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I really appreciate you giving your time up. And um, it's also just, yeah, on a personal level, it's just really nice to hear you talk more about your experience and, yeah, your your thoughts about it. Because, you know, we we do talk about it, but it's just nice to sort of, formally talk about it and find out more so thank you yeah.
2: all right thank you enjoyed
0: that i mean that was brilliant so thank you for for taking the time david to to do that and it was so interesting listening to your dad because i couldn't help but uh, agree with him a great deal on <laughs> Almost everything. <laughs> but, yeah, I thought um, you might. <laughs> so so because, so, um, without sort of straying too far from the, the point of all of this, I undertook some similar military service, but uh, of a voluntary nature whilst I was uh, studying for my master's degree and, and also my, my PGCE. Uh, and i like your father was posted to germany uh, and and did some exercises over there although it was on the senalaga training area and um you know there was even then far more recently there was no concept that what we were doing would ever be required you know there there was this there was this european enemy this sort of fictional enemy uh, that actually had the capability of a state like Russia in terms of all its small arms and, and what have you. You know, you were you're effectively training to to stop a, a Russian advance in Central Europe, but there was no actual understanding that that would ever happen. And then suddenly it's, it's happening. Um, what your dad's saying about having people capable of defending themselves would would be useful on a practical level. But yeah, I, I agreed with a lot of his other points. You know, this idea of Maybe having a, an NHS element to it, or, or other other arms of service, uh, I think would be incredibly useful.
1: Well, that's you were saying about there was a citizenship service that you mentioned, the one yeah. that was started in 2010, which sounds very similar to what he
0: was talking about. That was non-military. That's right. So in 2010, as part of I think it was David Cameron's big society idea, the National Citizen Service was founded. And you're absolutely right. So it was aimed at 15 to 17 year olds. And it was really a government backed scheme to provide non-military service opportunities. And, um, you know, that that is fairly popular i think it's fair to say and and actually within a within the first decade of it being rolled out over half a million young people had had completed the national citizen service it sounds like a big number uh, i don't know what that would be in percentage terms but um that again is um is an an optional scheme do we know if there's any um i mean
1: you may not know this but it'd be interesting to know if there's any impact on uh, you know research into that in terms of the effect on careers uh you know job job prospects and, and wage earning and things like that it does it have a measurable impact in people getting jobs and and earning a higher potentially a higher salary well we
0: were that oh, would be in one way of measuring it yeah yeah no absolutely and i'm i'm sure you know your dad talked about fairly minimal skills um being given in, in radio operation but but yes, he sure. said it was a bit of a waste of time which was quite funny yeah but, but i'm sure actually the practical skills that he did learn were or could have been useful in in some capacity in the real world uh you know on sydney street but um i won't, won't speak for him anyway but 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 the, yeah it's interesting because before this podcast we we spoke about maybe there being a link between unemployment and these initiatives being introduced and with the National Citizen Service, I was interested to see whether there was a correlation because actually when Cameron came in with that idea in 2010, unemployment was on the rise. So maybe it was a, an effort to sort of mitigate that. Um, and, and then, you know, through other initiatives, unemployment did drop afterwards. But, but as to how useful that is, I'm not sure. But to give you an example, when going for a job interview there's always the question isn't there about experience what experience do you have of this well if it's your first job on the ladder particularly in a time of high unemployment one way to give people some form of relevant experience is through these initiatives yeah I mean and, and we should
1: look at unemployment rates so just for the record um, a quick google search has told us that the current unemployment rate at least for November to January, November 2022 to January 2023 is 3.7%, which I think is a slight decrease over the previous years, although there's been a bit of an up and down with Brexit and COVID and things like that. Um, then, But it, very interestingly, when you look at the young person's employment rate, uh, it's between 106 and 108 depending on how you define that. Um, there's this definition uh, that this term NEAT, which stands for young people who are not in education, employment or training uh, between the ages of 16 and 24. And that's the age group that you would be looking at for something like a national service, which is, you know, the people who are not doing, who are not in school, who are not in sort of universities, who are not doing any further sort of apprenticeships or training and certainly not employed and that's, that seems like a really high number, particularly when you compare it to the national unemployment rate, you know, 10.6 or 10.8, whatever you call it, compared to 3.7 is, is really startling, showing you that that's where our unemployed
0: of this country, majority of them seem to be. That seems very high. And, you know, before the NEAT rating back in 1982 is the highest post-war unemployment uh, rate, you know, rate of, of all, and that was 14%. But obviously, that's across the whole adult population. And so 10.4 of youth seems very high indeed. So I think more of these initiatives, if, if we're able to, to have them, providing relevant skills, which people can use either in interviews, or, or perhaps it might give them the confidence and the capability to, to become self-employed, Um, and and employ others even through entrepreneurial initiatives Mm. maybe um, maybe that's something we should be encouraging and you know in the majority of schools that aren't offering you know I I know lots of these are sort of running alongside schools but but if we accept that schools have a responsibility to provide this form of of offering then um, you know maybe that's something we should be encouraging
1: certainly if there's any kind of links between service of whatever kind and employment, that's an added dimension to the ones we were talking about earlier, which is the sort of, you know, gaining a certificate, um, having that kind of sense of, 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 you know, being selfless or being kind of that, that sort of endorphin hit of kinds, some kind just going back to this national service. I, I think it's really interesting, this discussion and certainly it was fascinating for me to talk to my dad um i'd probably put myself i know you've had some military experience and you talked about i probably put myself more towards the pacifist end of of, sort of things personally i'm i'm very um I'm obviously uh yeah i'm i'm very anti war in lots of ways uh, anti-nuclear weapons that's sort of my personal views Uh, but some of the things that he said were quite sobering you know particularly in the sense of the idea that everybody is in it together and you don't have a choice and I thought that was quite startling for me to think about it's a very different perspective it's not like you currently you know you could decide you know when you're sort of younger is military something you're interested in where you go into it, I've had friends who's gone have gone into the navy or the army. Uh, uh, you know, when war happens to your country, like it has in Ukraine, everybody's in it, whether you're fighting or not. Um, you know, you're you're involved in it. So, bringing it back to sort of national service, it, it is a, it is a compulsory thing when it's done, and and obviously there would be a lot of people who would be really anti it, as we talked about. When you look at national services in other countries. And I do think it's the countries that have experienced some sort of existential threat of some kind that want to keep national service. So, you know, obviously, um, South Korea has national service. Um, So does North Korea. Uh, Singapore, which you could, you know, say doesn't have an existential threat, but nevertheless is a island, a city, island state. It's quite small. Uh, maybe there's that element, Israel has na- has
0: national service. I don't know what others that you can think of that do. So there are 85 countries in the world at the moment with compulsory. They're compulsory really? They're not. Really? Yeah, with compulsory national That's service. That's an
1: extraordinary number
0: yeah but not all of those have military uh you know right. uh, uh, military options are, are available but but not all of the 85 require military national service so that there, there's a lot of um you know service arms emergency services and and that sort of health care and um you know just as your dad mentioned basically um so yeah i think we um perhaps forget that. Uh, and and uh, I mean, you're, you're totally right in that the closer the society is in terms of, um, you know, in terms of its history with an existential threat, the more likely it is to have national service. I think that's a, a truism. Um, but yeah, I think one one thing your, your dad said, if we could touch upon it, um, without sort of war mongering or or, or, you know that that's not my intention at all but it's interesting that he sees more value in this the more the time has gone on because he can he can see that actually the the not only the camaraderie aspects but but also the actual the, the practical side of it um is still relevant you know and and that's something i know he said he thought it was a total waste of time whilst he was doing it and then immediately afterwards but it's quite interesting that, like the longer the longer time goes by, the more likely it is that a country might drop national service. But actually, that's maybe when you require it most. Uh, possibly, I mean, as you know, we're so
1: far away from it here; it's, it, it is it is hard to imagine it coming back in any sense. Even in the case of you know, uh, touch wood, you know, a war directly with another country. It, do you know? Because uh, my partners. Uh, cousin does national service in Singapore. And it was really interesting over the Christmas holidays, uh, chatting to him. He, they they work a bit like my dad. You go into a particular section and you know, you he's in, I think he's in sort of some medic section, although he's not a medic and you don't have to end up going to train for being doing medicine, but actually what a a lot of the time he spends doing is paperwork. And effectively it's having a workforce to run the military paperwork or the kind of dog's body jobs for all of the stuff that needs doing it's actually quite useful they obviously get a salary he loves the food and uh, you get to if you want to you get to choose to live at home and you actually get a choice about which area you go into it's not it's different to my dad you know he's told you're in signals you're in germany you do get a bit more of a, a choice so for but for him in Singapore, there's actually quite a lot of benefit to it. You get a lot of, lot of good friends from that, different friends to the people you were at school with. And then you get more time to think about whether you, what you do as in terms of going into university, uh, you know, it, it's it, for him, I can see it's actually quite a, a good thing. Uh, the only difference, I mean, the only big thing about it is that women don't compulsory national service they can do it but it's not compulsory whereas for all citizens of singapore you have to do it but yeah it was it was interesting if you kind of compare and contrast the sort of uh, the older uk system with something that's functioning today it comes across as quite an attractive proposition for a number of people at least in the way he said it anyway
0: so i i obviously volunteered to to do service mm. and and it was you know, incentivized by a, by a token degree. Um, and I would say it's the single most valuable thing I've done in my life, you know, regard compared, compared with formal education compared with, you know, higher education, all the rest of it, I'd say them, it was the most useful thing I've done. And, and I don't just mean in in terms of skills, but I'm I'm talking about in uh, terms of like confidence in terms of, actually fit fitness as well and, and actually making you realize your potential, the camaraderie aspect, honestly, it's it's endless. And I think personally, I look back on that with very fond memories, that, that period. And I'm so pleased that I did it. But uh, I, I know it's something that isn't on everyone's radar. And I think if we could maybe facilitate other options, maybe when people are a bit younger, then that, could be a good thing, and you know I, I don't think every type of service is right for everyone. But certainly, having the option, I think, would be would be a, a beneficial thing. And you know, we we talk about the snowflake generation. Uh, we don't personally, but you hear it banded around. And th- this idea of like resilience. Well, you can build resilience in a number of ways, and one which one way is is actually through service. And I think by, by doing something over and over again, you can build resilience. And so, Uh, yeah. 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 Just, just for the, I mean,
1: I, I think this generation, uh, which is sort of generation Z, is that right? That's Um, yeah. Apparently generation, I I don't pretend. Millennials have have got a lot of stick in in the past up until recently, but now we're millennials pretty much. And we're sort of, you know, quite a bit older now. And um, generations that I, I think the younger generations get a lot of misplaced ire. And also, I think if you, you know, like me, you've studied, you know, you're a historian. I'm not a historian, but, you know, I've studied history. Um, you know, you look back and pretty much whether you look back into the 18th century or the Roman times, there's always people complaining about young people, right? There's always going to be that. Uh, I don't really believe much about that that's true because, uh, but, so I think this generation is remarkably resilient because the problems they've got to cope with are increasingly more challenging and more complex. You know, climate change, there's unemployment, there's cost of living, there's all sorts of complex issues that they've got to navigate very finely in terms of finding themselves a career, a life, someone, a life partner, possibly somewhere to be, somewhere to build purpose. There's just so much that I think they've got to do social media, so I, I you know, I think this idea of snowflake is I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of that. But I do when I think I going back to what we talked about at the beginning. One thing I do really feel strongly about is the whether you know it doesn't have to be military at all. Doesn't even have to be a big organizational thing, but creating a space for young people to to learn service and that to become intrinsic and part of their nature as a fun thing, as a thing that supports kindness and care for others. That I think is, is useful, whoever we're talking
0: about, wherever we are. A hundred percent. And I think you're, you know, you're right. I think this, this current generation going through formal education at the moment have probably got to navigate far more challenges than, than previous generations. And so anything we can do to, to help develop, Resilience, or to provide skills or opportunities with which to develop things which will lead to a kinder uh, society, then um, then we should certainly be doing it. And uh, an example, actually, that we haven't spoken about is the John Muir Award, which is more popular in in Scotland, but it's uh, a, again a voluntary award, sometimes undertaken through schools, and the, it's very low to actually to to no cost. Um, Part of the award, it, it, certainly the the lower sort of uh, rungs of the awards scheme are, are, are free in nature, um, and and that is all about serving the environment, which I think is really c- current. And you know, the, there's this idea that actually you could be going out and, and volunteering in your local environment. You know, not ne- not necessarily helping people, but but helping animals and, and nature, and that that is also considered service. And so there are all these schemes out there that exist, but um, it really it should be our job as teachers to to signpost them and, and to facilitate opportunities for, for young people.
1: Some of them don't need it. Last year, uh, one of my year six pupils, she started her own charity. She actually started, I think, when she was in year four or five. And I can't remember now what it was specifically, but I remember, I think it was something to do with a park that she wanted to develop and I remember she wrote to her MP and she said, you really need to sort this out. And he wrote back saying some kind of quiet sort of lip and on, you know, quite sort of saying, no, oh yeah, we'll look at it. And I think she wrote back again saying, no, no, you really got to sort this out. And I think she wrote to someone else saying, my MP is not listening to me. And, you know, there was a determination there. she got, she started a charity. She raised something like four to 5,000 pounds on her own. Uh, you know, just with support from, you know, Her parents to get it involved and and then get it put out there and the class only found out about it something like a year later when I asked everyone to give a talk and she got up and talked about this charity she started and it was extraordinary and you know someone like that obviously doesn't really need to go through a program because she's already doing it at the age
0: of 10 and you know that wherever she goes on to she'll carry on doing something magnificent in life and and i think it's it's about the the 99%, isn't it? and it's and it's about of, of course yeah and it's about promoting the the very fact that that she has done that because then that empowers the others because then they realize what they're capable of and I, and i suppose the whole point of these award schemes is that self-realization. Um, I know. In future episodes, we want to explore this a little bit more, We're talking about maybe looking at round square schools that do this a lot. Uh, I think that's probably an episode on its own. But um, there are there are real structures which are currently in place that schools can adopt, and so it's not a case of reinventing the wheel. Although although it, it's a truism that you know you can create a, an award fit for your local community and you know that that is definitely something to be encouraged but there are sort of off-the-shelf schemes which you can you can follow so this doesn't need to be very difficult but it it does need to be done
1: yeah get out there look around what's around or you know email in tweet us tell us what you're doing what your schools are doing we'd love to hear more about it or share it with other people one thing i'd love to finish on is um, bts Ross, do you know who BTS are? No, go for it. I thought you wouldn't. BTS are a Korean boy band and they there's seven of them. And I thought it was a nice little fact to end on. They One of the big challenges, in fact, one of the things that has been discussed a lot in, in South Korea in terms of this, this band is that they're going to have to do national service, which means because there are seven of them it's, and they're not all the same age, they're all going to end up going through it over a period of time which means this band which actually generates quite a lot of money for the korean economy is going to have to go on a hiatus for a while and i think i'm right in thinking there's at least one or even possibly three members have already gone into it so there's this sort of like stalling of of things and i thought we'd find that enjoyable no, it's, to know clear,
0: that. it's brilliant yeah absolutely brilliant nice to hear that they're not exempt despite their um know impact on the economy superstar status yes no this this was i think the
1: big discussion was around whether they should be because of you know because people love them so yeah one to finish on um with bts i think for
0: (laughs) maybe for our viewers that like bts Um, brilliant. Well, um, thank you, and also thank you again for interviewing your dad, and thank you to your dad. Uh, you know that that was really special listening to that, and I, mm. I, personally, I really enjoyed listening to what he had to say. So, thank you. Well, thank you for giving him the
1: platform as well, and, and being supportive of that because I think it's it's really nice to hear from from older voices, and it's really good for him to have that opportunity to share, but also for us to to, to share it with others. Um, there aren't many people who
0: you know have been through national service who are still around so so yeah thanks that's that's really appreciated no worries um you can tell them from me that uh, the catering at catterick garrison probably hasn't changed since the 50s <laughs> got it i'll <laughs> let him know <laughs> right well on that note you've been listening to the rest is education i'm ross borswick
1: and i'm david marshall and you can get in touch with us on twitter by email i think our instagram may still be floating around somewhere so we'll we'll be back with a, another episode soon.